You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. I go on Facebook a lot. You know, a lot of times I'll put a joke to make people laugh, or I'll wish happy birthday, or I'll promote Cooper Talk. But also, what I do once in a while is I ask questions, like a poll. Like the other day, I wrote, of the four. Okay, now that's the pertinent part, of the four. I said, of the four, Tiny Dancer, your song, Daniel, or Levon. And of course, someone always has to say, Funeral for a Friend, or Benny and the Jets. And I just don't get it. It's like, of the four. If you go to a restaurant and the waiter says to you, would you like asparagus or broccoli? You don't say Brussels sprouts. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's uh, got a busy schedule coming up. He's playing all over. He's playing with the smithereens. He's playing with his trio. I know he's doing a show down there at Randy Now's Man Cave. And my guest is Marshall Crenshaw. How you doing, Marshall? Hey, Steve. Good afternoon. Now, now, what what song is it for you? Of the four, is it? Do you like the best? Tiny Dancer, your song, Levon, or Daniel? Uh, I like all those actually. I, I just have to pick one. Well, no, of those four, they're, they're, uh, I pick uh, Tiny Dancer. All right, great. So, um, you're busy. I know you're starting to with the Smithereens. How did you get involved? Mm-hmm. How did you get involved playing with the Smithereens? Because they're legendary. You're you're a very legendary songwriter. Everyone knows who you are. How did you hook up with the Smithereens? Yeah, I, that's kind of uh, out of left field, I suppose. But uh, I, you know, I've, I've known them a long time. Like always, I've known them. And then uh, Pat Denizio, of course, left the building on December. 
because again, this was real soon after the tribute show, which which uh, I was, you know, I just wanted to keep that feeling going from that night, and that's where I am with it still. You know, uh, um, it's been now it's been over a year. There's about 35 shows I think I've done with them, but it's fun, you know, uh, and it's it's fun to hang with them. They're nice people, and uh, they got like kind of a family atmosphere at their shows. It's nice, and so and I like the music too a lot. So I'm just doing it, you know. I'm still doing it. Now, how do you how did you prepare for it in the beginning? Did you have to go back and learn their whole catalog? Did they give you a set list, or how does it? Because you know you're coming from the outside. They have a big body of work. I'm sure they have very diehard fans who want to hear different stuff. How did you go about learning their whole catalog? Well, you know, at the, at the trivia show, Robin Wilson from the Jim Blossoms was there, and he does shows with them too now. He's like the other guy that does it. But I remember that night that there were a couple people that couldn't that couldn't make it to the show, so, you know, like they were just asking around who could fill in. And Robin, he knows all of their songs. Like, he already knew all of their songs. He, they would just say, well, do you know this? Can you fill in for this guy? And, and he would be like, yeah, 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 I know that one. Just, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of it, you know, knows it by memory. But I don't, and I, I told them, I said, I know I've seen your shows, and I know that Pat used to just call him out. Like, there was no set list. He would just say what the next song was going to be. I said, I can't do that. You're going to have to tell me what songs to learn. Uh, you know, because I knew some. I knew like a dozen of their songs, but I, I didn't know enough to play a show. So, they, you know, I wound up learning like 30 of them, I think, initially. And it, I had a hard time with it, actually, because at my age, it's not easy to cram all that new information into my brain within a short span of time. There was even a bit of a awkwardness you know with the first six or seven shows because every night and then I would blank hard on something but I don't do that anymore fortunately it's been long enough although I take that back because this is a really weird thing that happened the last time I played with them <laughs> they started a song and I started I sang the wrong song <laughs> For about a verse and a half, I was singing the wrong song, and uh, all of a sudden I hear Dennis just like he's banging his drums in this weird way. Mike's playing like a bass solo and going crazy, and I'm like, "What the hell's going on?" <laughs> we turned around, and Dennis says, "You're singing the wrong song." <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I hated that that happened. You know, it was a senior moment. Now, now when uh, you anyway. when you play for them, do you? put your own spin on it or do they want you to sound like Pat? I mean, how does it do it? Because it's something that, you know, like Journey, you know, they have a new singer, of course he has to sound like Stephen Perry. But for you, what did they want from you? Because you and Robin sound very different too. We do, yeah. Uh, no, they, you know, they, they, it would be stupid for me to try to sound like anybody else. I can't do it. And uh, they did ask if we could just play their songs and they were maybe afraid that I was going to try to turn it into like half and half or like add some of my tunes. And I never wanted to do that, you know. I wanted to take a vacation for myself while I was 
playing and singing with them, so I was fine with that. But that was it. They just, you know, said, well, we'd like to keep it as a smithereens thing. And I said, yeah, that's, that works for me for sure. Now, yeah, you're going to be going on tour soon. Now, I know you're going to some shows with the Marshall Crenshaw Trio. And it seems like trios are becoming popular. I just saw uh, Stephen Page. He played with a trio. And Jack Hughes from Wang Chung is playing with a trio. What mm. what brings, as an artist like you, you know, you're a singer-songwriter, you know, you play guitar. How do you how did you get involved that you wanted to do the trio? And what why, what brought you to doing a trio? Well, you know, when I was starting to work with my brother and I was coming up with my first songs and all that, and we were, you know, like getting the sound to come to life, uh, I decided then to, to just edit to the trio because I just love the, uh, you know, the really spare approach really just appealed to me you know like if you would I was really hung up on uh, the Dorsey Brothers shows with Elvis Presley I don't know if you know what I'm talking about but the first TV shows that Elvis Presley was on it was Dorsey Patani and Jimmy Dorsey and you know he comes out and the, the stage is dark you just see him in the middle and you see these these guys but they're like real tight in with him and they're real close together and the drummer's on this little riser it's, it's sick the image of it really stuck in my mind it's just these four guys against against the world you know and then the, the Beatles uh, the Washington Coliseum uh, I still love that concert film of theirs and it's just the four of them it's, it's also minimal, you know. It's just like these little amplifiers and the four guys. Nothing else on stage, and I just I, I, I love that still. Just that kind of simplicity. And uh, so my brother and I, you know, we just got a bass player, and off we went. Now, at what age did you start performing? Did you start very young? Did you know you wanted to be a musician at a young age? And you know, when did you start? Well, let me see. I got a guitar when I was uh, a kid and started playing it when I was about 10. And, uh, yeah, eventually there were, you know, like rock bands forming at my junior high school and high school. And I just got into it immediately as soon as I could. But it was kind of a thing to do. I mean, I was doing, I was going to do it regardless, but it just so happened that after the Beatles came along, you know, like everybody wanted to be in a band and there were like six or seven rock bands at my high school. But I, you know, I just started as soon as I could start and never stopped. Now, coming from Detroit, was there influences up there that uh, you gravitated to early on age, early in your career? In Detroit? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a hotbed, and it's got a an amazing legacy of uh, musicians, you know, and music coming from there. It's a fountainhead of music, right? And uh, so, yeah, it was. It, I mean, I have a, you know a lot of great memories of uh, Detroit radio. Detroit radio was really like a 
big fan, you know, I grew up on it. And it was, um, you know, Top 40 radio when I was a kid, it was really eclectic. You'd hear, uh, you know, just all genres all kind of crammed into the day-to-day playlist. And uh, so I grew up with that. And then FM Rock Radio, when it first started out, was really, really, really eclectic. You know, it it changed away from that pretty quickly. But, you know, it started out, I remember WABX, the, the FM Rock station, was one of the first in the country. And they would play like Igor Stravinsky and they'd play Holland Wolf and uh, they'd play Alice Coltrane and along with all the rock bands, you know. But anyhow, so, but Detroit itself, you know, I mean, it's just nuts. We could go, I just read a great book called Jazz from Detroit by Mark Stryker. And it's a, just a great history. There's so many legends that came from there. And then, of course, Motown and the MC5 and the Stooges, all of that, you know. I felt really strongly connected to all that stuff. Jack Scott, Jackie Wilson. Ridiculous, you know. It just so, goes on and on and on. So you listen to it. You have this great uh, backyard. Are you Is your band playing in, in Detroit when you get... I mean, you said there's a lot of high school guys in the band in high schools, but did you guys start playing gigs in Detroit? Not so much. I mean, yes, but, but um, you know, there had been a kind of a, like an original music scene centered around this place, the Grandy Ballroom. But I was too young for that. You know, uh, I never even went to the Grandy Ballroom, I'm sad to say. There was one time when I was going to go with some friends of mine that they had tickets to, to go to the Grandy Ballroom the night that the MC5 recorded the Kick Out the Jams album. But I was grounded and couldn't leave my parents' house because I was failing all my classes in high school. So that was it. I, I never went. But then, you know, I, when I got a driver's license, then the granny was gone. But there was a place called the East Town Theater. But the local scene, by the time I got out and around, got out of high school and stuff, the local scene had really kind of died. There was just nothing left of it. All that was left was bar bands and cover bands. So I did that for a little while, but, you know, there was no real, there was no opportunity there after about 1969, 70. There were only really, during during the first sort of blush of, the, of it, you know, there were really only a couple bands that made it out of there, uh, the MC5 and the Stooges. And then there were a couple, there were others that made records, but they were just kind of marginal, like The Frost and the, another band called The Third Power. They got a deal with Vanguard Records, and, you know, that was just kind of like, I could see it, you know, after a while I, I could, I just did the math, and I thought, you know, if I stay here, the odds are like 10 million to one against me. But if I leave, then maybe they're like 100,000 to one against me. So, so I left, you know. And you went to New York? Well, first I went out west. I went to Los Angeles with this friend of mine. And I just happened to run into this guy one day. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we used to jam together in high school and stuff. And 
again, you know, a couple of years had gone by, I hadn't seen him at all, and I just crossed paths with him by chance one day, and I said, well, what happened to you? Where have you been, man? And he explained to me that he was living in Los Angeles, playing in a band, and that, and you know, we had a conversation, right? And he wound up, he wound up telling me that that his band needed a guitar player. And I, I said, when are you going back? And he said, in, in three weeks. And I said, well, I'll go too. And that was it. <laughs> if I hadn't run into that guy, then I don't know. But uh, anyway, I went out there with him. And then I wound up in a band, but it was a weird band. It was like a country western cover band and uh, on a really funny touring circuit through Wyoming and Nevada, Colorado, Montana, you know, through the mid, through the West. Real interesting, but uh, anyway, somehow or another, in the middle of all that, I wound up getting hired for Beatlemania, and I went, so I went to New York and then decided to stay there. Uh, I was, you know, I just went out the door and kind of threw myself at the mercy of fate, more or less. Yeah, now, now, I headed west, the, the thing headed about, west, but wound up on the East Coast. Now, the thing about, when you said, you know, you ended up on Beatlemania, um, I'm sure you auditioned for it, but there must have been a shitload of people auditioning because, you know, musicians all idolize the Beatles, and you got to play John Lennon, which, I mean, you know, that's pretty cool. That's, I mean, awesome. How many people were you against, up against to get that part? Do you know? Well, let me see. I sent in a, a audition tape and a picture of myself from when I was in high school, and it was a profile shot. And I had, you know, hair past my shoulders, and I was wearing wearing glasses. And, you know, I did a, in this picture. I do resemble John Lennon. And uh, so then, what happened next was um, the show was a, a success on Broadway. And it was also a success on the West Coast, and they were about to open a touring, co start a touring company. So, I don't know, uh, they sent somebody out to Detroit to audition me, because I'd, I'd come back home for Christmas. My trip out West, you know, like, by the time Christmas rolled around, I wasn't, there were no more tour dates with that band I was with, so I, I went back to the Detroit area, and, uh, so I guess it must, must have been January or so that they sent a guy out to audition me in Detroit in the Detroit area. He was the music director for the Broadway company. And the guy's name is, he's still around, the guy's name is Sandy Yaguto. And he's a member, of, he was a member of Jay and the Americans in the 60s and now he's back with them. <laughs> so Sandy Yaguto was a guy, he came out to the Detroit area, did the audition. And you know, it was. I think it was already decided that they were going to hire me, but they did hold. They did hold, have an open casting call, and there were maybe a dozen other guys that came in and audition. But and I was it. Off I went. You know, they sent me a plane ticket. I just got married. My owner and I went to New York. That was it, and I've been here ever since. Now, did it did it help your stage performance and you know, say being on stage? all that time, play, even though you weren't playing your own music, do you think it helped you grow as a live performer playing Lennon in that, in that play? Oh, that's debatable, I guess, but uh, 
Well, yeah, I mean, being in front of audiences doing the show, it did make me want to kind of go down that road of, um, because I mean, I wasn't sure, like, what path I was going to take, if I was going to try to do behind-the-scenes stuff, or if I was going to join a band, or, like, what I was going to do, ultimately, but, uh, yeah, doing the show, I guess it sort of gave me the bug. <laughs> to be on stage uh, with my own band. I mean, you know, I've been on stage for years by then, you know, in bar bands and bands at school and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I'm not sure if I, if I know the answer to that question. That's all right. Now, now, were you writing music at this time, too? When did you start writing songs? Yeah, I started while I was in the show. You know, I just it had been kind of building up inside of me. And uh, throughout the, all the traveling I did, I was just sort of like, you know, it was just, I was just, it was formulating in my mind, I think. And, uh, and at some point I just kind of spilled everything out that had been building up in my head. And I also just had this real clear idea about the sound, you know, and the style that I wanted to pursue. And, all of a sudden, there it was. It was just like this really well-formulated thing, you know? My sound and my style, it was like, oh, okay. I got it, here I go, you know? And, uh, when I started, you know, I started writing, I, I wrote a bunch of songs a week. After I gave my notice in Beatlemania, I'd already written a few songs and recorded them at home. I got really busy once I'd given my notice. I was in Boston and I had like four weeks before I was going to be out on the streets and, and uh, so I would write songs in my hotel room every night. I wrote about half the stuff that's on my first album. Now was it was it hard for you to get that first album, the record deal? I mean, how do you go about it? Because you're coming from Beatlemania, you have the songs recorded, but you're still a no-name. How did you go about getting a deal? Well, it wasn't hard. It was just like people immediately dug what we were doing. And uh, that's everybody, you know, like that's people in the record industry and that, you know, people in show business that I played it, played the stuff for or that heard it. And there was audiences in New York just right away, boom, you know, instant acceptance. So that was pretty cool, you know. I didn't know that was going to happen, but... I mean, the stuff was good, and uh, we were ready, willing, and able to get out there. And, uh, and yeah, just right away. I had, at one point, I was, you know, like every label, not every label, but there were like, there was a lot of interest, you know? I mean, I don't know how many A&R people came out to the shows ultimately, but there were, in the end, there were two solid offers and then a bunch that were maybe about to burst forth, you know. It was, a of, it was a lot of stuff going on. A lot of press right away. Radio play, it was really cool. I loved it. Now, do you remember uh, the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? I don't exactly remember. Oh, I know, I do remember, yes. Um, Robert Gordon recorded uh, my song, Someday, Someway. And there was a DJ on W. We loved that record. Meg Griffin, and she's still alive and well, still on the radio. She's on 
XM a lot now, a lot of different channels on XM, but anyway, she was crazy about Robert's record, and she broke that record in New York City, made it a hit on WNEW, and then shortly after that, I made my own single, and they, she played that too, you know, it was an indie single, just a single, you know, I didn't have an album, and uh, I mean, WNEW was a real you know, it was it was pretty like user friendly and audience friendly, but 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 it was you know in the corporate rock world mostly. But they played my single, which was really kind of oddball at the time. But yeah, I heard it on on her show, and I just was you know it floored me really. But uh, but I'd already kind of been through it a little bit because I was hearing Robert Gordon's record, and that was just as exciting to me as hearing my own record. Just hearing my song on the radio was exciting, uh, but it was great. You know, it was pretty cool. Now, now, when when you like Robert did your song, when you you hear it and you wrote it, and then you do it on your own, does it ever get like? Do you take any influence from maybe his performance and try to switch it up, or how do you go about keeping it all? You know, because it's it's your song. And it's going to have your sound. Yeah. How do you, how do you, as a performer and writer, how do you balance, you know, when you do it after you've heard it by someone else, even though you've written it? Yeah. Well, number one, I didn't want to record the song, and I got like forced to do it by Warner Brothers. They insisted that I do it, and I and I said, no, I'm not going to do it, and they just, you know, they demanded that I record it. But it, but it was stupid on my part because I, the reason I didn't want to do it is because I thought, well, people already know this by Robert Gordon. But I was clueless in that instance because you know his his record was only a hit in New York City, and they, you know it went up the chart, the singles chart a little bit, but I think it got to like number seventy or something like that. So I was wrong, and they were right, you know. And I'm glad that I did do it. But I mean, the versions are not the same. At all, you know, he's he's got this kind of uh, you know really on top of the beat all the time. His singing is like real aggressive, and uh, our thing has this real kind of lazy groove to it, which is nice. I like his version too, but they're different. Uh, so no, I mean I never tried to copy his version. Now I liked it, but th- does the record company? start treating you different when you have a hit the song someday some way was a hit does record company look at you differently or are you still just an artist that they're saying you know you're only as good as your last song no we always had a lot of trouble you know my relationship with them was really troubled from the start and uh, well what I didn't understand was and I got told this later on uh, you know it was explained to me it was like way, way after the fact, but like the East Coast office of Warner Brothers was like the poor cousin to the West Coast, you know, like the real energy center of the company was in Burbank. And they, you know, like they just sort of like the people in Burbank had a kind of an attitude about the, about the New York office. And uh, right when I... Uh, like my, at my A&R person's funeral is where I hear about this. <laughs> it's so, so sad that she's that she's not around. I wish it was 
still walking the earth. Her name was Karen Bird, and she she was a friend, you know, as well as somebody that I worked with. But uh, at her funeral, you know, a couple of different people whispered in my ear and said, well, you know, they never would give us money to promote our records, and blah, blah, blah. I've had, like, I don't know, a dozen different mea, mea culpas over the years from people that worked at my that worked at Warner Brothers when my first album was out. It was just kind of funny to me now, but uh, anyway, yeah, it was, it was weird, right? It was problematic right from the start. And my other offer that I had was for more money, and that was with RCA. And so, I mean, I don't know if things would have gone better with them or if it would have gone differently. I kind of think maybe they would have because uh, they were breaking a lot of singles. RCA was with Holland Oaks and you know, they, they, I think they would have just really gone for it more than Warner Brothers did. That still doesn't mean that it would have gone well. I have no idea. You know, you never know what, you can spe- you can only speculate about what might have happened. But anyway, that's so, how it went. It was Warner Brothers. It was just, it just was off to, it got off to a weird start and then it got worse. Now, now, as an artist, how do you handle that? Like, you know, it's it's your it's your music. You're busting your ass. I'm sure you're going on the road, and you don't have the support always of the record company. How do you keep your your chin up per se when that's going through? And you know, it's like, you know, it's got to be irking you, but you have to keep a smile on your face. I'm guessing. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, I mean, I just wasn't gonna let it beat me, and uh, so I just kept going no matter what. I tried to, I just blocked the unpleasant stuff out of my mind and kept going. I mean, it's, it's, it still was, uh, uh, it was bad, you know, that I had to, <laughs> to work at a disadvantage like that. But anyway, that's just how I, it's, I just had to do it that way. I just had to keep trying. And fortunately, or, or unfortunately, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, but like I said, my AR person in New York was, was somebody that, you know, I liked her. And she just like insisted that that you know she she just like wouldn't let go of it even after my deal was over. I'd done my five albums for for them and was ready to bolt out the door, but she still wanted me to stay. And uh, you know that was really sweet. But anyhow, uh, like I said, it just started the way it started, and then I just kind of kept going down and down and down. Now, but, uh, here I am. <laughs> no, no. Now, also, you've been in movies. How did you end up in Pegasus Got Married and how did you end up in La Bamba and what was that experience for you? Because, you know, you've been on stage already as John Lennon, but now, I mean, how did, did they come approach you? How does it happen when you're a, a musician is in a movie? Oh, with, with Peggy Sue Got Married, um, the, the writer, the script writer was a a fan of my records and he wrote us he wrote us into the script you know like he just put us in there like they're gonna be in the movie you know which was pretty great and then you know prior to that though like right away I did have lots of good work with um, songs getting placed in movies but you know like that's that I think is what's given the stuff the longevity that it's had for sure that's what that's what did it but uh, anyway, so the movies, you know, that right away that was kind of kind of good to me. And I will say this: Warner Brothers, they tried to press that. You know, like I sang a song on the soundtrack to Superman Three, 
believe it or not. And that was the first one in the in the series that was a flop. There was Superman, the first Superman movie with uh, Christopher Reeve, and then there was Superman Two, and they were both huge. And then the third one, I think that was the one that had Richard Pryor in it. I'm not sure what the deal was, but anyway, I never even saw the movie. But they got me on the soundtrack, and I sang a song that was written by Giorgio Moroder, and the track was produced by him. And I remember this still. I, I was I did my second album with Steve Lillywhite, and then on the last night of the last session, we had to finish that night no matter what, because he was leaving and I was leaving. And uh, so I finished that session, and then I just went straight to the airport out to Los Angeles to record this song for Superman 3, and it was a song called Rock On, which was <laughs> not terribly great, you know, but uh, anyway, so I was doing movies. I was, I was involved with movies right away, which is cool. And then, um, so Peggy Sue got married, and then shortly thereafter, the people from Obama came after me because, I'd, you know, I'd always gotten this thing in, in the reviews and uh, articles and stuff, you know, where I would be compared to Buddy Holly. I was a Buddy Holly guy, right? So, the Bondo, you know, they did the Buddy Holly in the movie, and I got, I got the tap on the shoulder for that one. So you're doing the movies and you're doing music for movies. When you would do music for movies, well, you not you rock or whatever it was called that you didn't write. If you write a song for a movie, do they ask you, uh, okay, here's the scene, here's what we want, or how does that go? Well, I haven't done that very many times where I wrote an original song for a movie. Usually when I've heard something in a movie, almost all the time, it's just been something from a record of mine, you know, like a music supervisor hears it or they, you know, they, they like that song and it goes in the movie. But let me see. Now, um, first time I wrote a song for a movie, it was this little kind of low-budget movie called Pants on Fire, which I don't think has ever been released in the U.S. I wrote a song for that one called Television Light. I still play that song. Then the next time after that that I wrote an original song for a movie was when I co-wrote a one of the Jim Blossoms hit singles for a movie called Empire Records. And they were, they already had the gig. Like, they were going to, you know, because they, they just had a huge hit album. So they were going to be, they were asked by the filmmakers to come up with a track. So Jesse, the guitar player, I hadn't met him, but he sought me out, like, called me up. And, uh, said, well, you know, I want you to help me write this song, help us write this song. So that just landed in a huge song, you know, right out of the box. So there was that, and then jump ahead a few years, and I got asked to write the theme song, or write songs, I should say, for uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. And uh, I wrote four or five songs for that thing, but the only one of mine that got in the movie was the theme song. And that was, so that was good because, you know, the theme song was like, it was publicized and, you know, they, they hooked up a, like a Grammy nomination for it. And uh, I mean, it was a good song and everything like that, but, you know, it was a big Hollywood production, expensive movie. And, uh, but those are the only times I've written original songs for movies. The rest of the time, 
I could imagine. Now, now, how do you, how do you, uh, you've written so many songs. How has your writing changed over the years, or do you pretty much still stay to what you started at in the early days? Well, the way it's changed lately is I don't do it anymore. But <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I keep making a New Year's resolution to go to the graduate. But uh, anyway, yeah, the way I do it actually is the way I always have done it which is to start by figuring out what the drums are going to do what's the beat that's the first thing I do and then I just kind of build it up from there so yeah I do it the same way now that I did when I started how about your lyrical content is that is that has that developed as your life has changed and you've gotten older uh, yeah sure um, but it's just a matter of, you know, I, I'm not a lyric writer, just I'm, I'm not like a natural writer, you know, I'm a guitar player and I write songs so I can make records, that's the only reason I ever wrote songs, and so I would have something to record, and I, like I said, I start with the drums and then I, I write the music first and then I gotta fill a blank page, which is, uh, <clears throat> the part that doesn't come easily, but I, you know, I get it done, and uh, you know, I, I like some of the. Uh, sometimes I'm self-critical about about my lyrics, but I mean, you know, I'm okay. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. And then lately, I've been working with a co-writer on lyrics. I, I write lyrics with this guy Dan Byrne, who has a real facility with it and is really a smart person and a really great writer. And, so we get together and write the lyrics now. I like it better than I I wish that I had found him a long time ago. Now, who's in the trio when you when you go out and play now, like with this upcoming dates so when you're not playing the Smithereens? Who's who's in the trio and how'd you find them? Well, I just kinda have like a talent pool, you know, like I, there's just like a eight or ten guys that I that I just see you know, I see who's around. The guys that know my stuff that I've played with before, um, but lately it's been uh, Jared Nickerson, Jared Michael Nickerson on bass, and uh, Dan Hickey on drums, and I've been playing with them for the last couple of years, and it's, it's a really great trio. These guys really uh, put a lot of feeling into it and uh, we play great together so that's, that's that's who it is these days now do you play all of your own songs or do you play other people's songs or how does it work or do you play some of these other guys if they have songs how does it work what you play yeah we just play my stuff I mean we, we do Crime Wade and Hulk because that's a little bit people like to hear that and I love to play and this one called 2541 and called it about 20 years ago it's a great song by Grant Hart and uh but that's about it as far as cover tunes go for the trio thing the rest of it is my tunes it's great because no I really I haven't played much of my I haven't played my stuff that much since June 
I'm looking forward to doing it. I've just been playing with the smithereens lately. Now, how do you how do you have such a big uh, catalog? How do you figure out what you're going to play? And then there are certain songs that people expect you to play, and you're tired of playing. How does it work when you've been around? You've had a successful career. You have a great catalog of songs, but when you play live, you want to keep everyone happy. But then people people always get pissed off, like, "Oh, he didn't play that." You know, maybe the most obscure song ever, but people are like, "Oh, he didn't play that." How do you put your set list together? Well, I never have done like a predominantly oldies show except when I did uh, some anniversary, 30th anniversary shows for my first album that was back in 2011 but uh, you know I mean I always play like a lot of the most recent stuff and then and then I think it's well balanced you know I, I, I play some of the earliest ones and then some of the most recent ones and then I just kind of fill in the middle but uh I don't know. I just really, really at this point in time, there are only about thirty-five or forty of them that I've continually played over the years, and a lot of them I don't remember anymore, which is strange. Because I used to, I used to have a really sharp memory, you know. Like I, I just, I just, but I don't anymore. I hate that. But anyhow, so I guess that's the first thing is I, I have to play the ones that I remember. Cause I, <laughs> It must. It must be tough. It must be tough. Yeah, I mean, like I saw. I know you're playing Randy Niles Man Cave, and uh, I saw Graham Parker there, and he was like, "I played some of these songs so many times, and and they were from years ago that you just forget them." And I think it's normal because most the normal person, you know, it's not a performer doesn't need to remember forty songs or fifty songs. You know, we might have to remember names of someone we knew in fifth grade, but it must be hard for your memory because you have to remember so much stuff. I know. I, I mean, if I'm a, if I if I plan a show where it's just me, then I do that sometimes. I I go out and play sometimes just by myself. You know, I do the long troubadour thing and I play solo. In that situation, I can play I can play requests and and you know. But if somebody asks for a song that I that I don't want to play, then I then I lie and say that I don't remember it. But just as often as that, I really don't remember it, you know, like, I'm not lying anymore. So, uh, but when I'm with the band, you know, I got to just play the ones that the guys know, whichever ones we've learned for the for the gigs. So that's kind of how that works. Now, now, I'm looking, at your, I'm looking at your website. It's people's website. It's marshallcrenshaw.com. It's a great website. And you have something, though, from a, an older schedule from the Bottle Rockets. Who are the Bottle Rockets? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. That's important. The Bottle Rockets, oh, great rock band, and they've been around for a long time. They've been around since the 90s. As far as I know, they started making records sometime early 90s, I think. And I'm a fan of their band, you know. Back when they started out, they had this song called $1,000 Car. <laughs> and it was, it was really, like, it's, it's a great song, you know. The problem with the song is, 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 is a, it has a four-letter word in the lyrics, uh, and if it hadn't been for that, you know, it would, it would have been huge. But uh, anyway, it's a great. People love that song, but loved it right out of the box. And uh, they just, you know, they've made a lot of great records over the years. Still, still do it. They're just one of those bands, that, like me. You know, they just keep marching on. You know, 
and creating new music and uh it's for a cult audience mostly but you know whatever it takes you know just keep going and uh about 2011 i started playing with them touring with them because we had the same agent right at that moment and he cooked up the idea so we went out and played some shows and just people loved it immediately and it was great for me because i they're just a great rock and roll band. So we do a thing where they play a set, and then I come out with them and we play a set of my stuff. And every year, ever since 2011, we go out and we do about maybe a dozen in one year, and then maybe 20 or 30 in the next year. But we always do some tour dates every year. And uh, it's great. I've, I've got a I've got a live CD coming out in March. And a lot of the tunes on it are, are, are me and them. So if you happen to get a chance to grab a copy of that, you can hear what we sound like or you can come to one of our gigs. But uh, anyway, yeah, the Bottle Rockets. If you don't know their stuff already, look into it. Now, do you have dates planned with them for later this year, or is it something that you guys just play it by ear, seeing what your schedules are like? Well, it usually happens in the first half of the year, you know. Like, we used to go on the road in January and February, <clears throat> and we're not doing that anymore, but um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's, always, it's pretty much always in the first half of, 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 a, year, of a given year, but we haven't, we haven't missed a year since 2011. Every single year we've gone out and played shows together. Now, with your tour, the trio, you seem to play a lot in the New Jersey, and I'm in, I'm in New Jersey right outside Philadelphia, you seem to play a lot in that area. Is that something because you just don't like to travel, or is it just something you're you're very more popular there, or because you have a lot of New York, DC? You all have things that they're you know four hours tops from New York. Is that just a personal preference? Well, I mean, I mostly have played in the Northeast over the years, you know, the Northeastern United States. But but I you know I, I go out. I mean, I don't go everywhere, but I just I just kind of go where I can go, you know, like. Chicago has always been a really great town for me. Southern California is good for me now. Texas, you know, uh, but but the Northeast is the bedrock of it. And I would say New Jersey. I'd say probably thirty percent of the gigs I've done, Jersey. So that's one of the places that's a real stronghold. New Jersey and New York, Boston. You know, like. That, that corridor between Boston and Washington, D.C. has always been really strong for me. Now, now you said you're working with a guy who writes lyrics, helps you write lyrics, you guys writing together. Do you expect to put out a new album in the near future? Well, I've got a thing that's coming out, actually. Um, I did five albums for this label called Razor and Tie during uh, 1994 to 2001. And I had, a, I had a good lawyer when I did the contract with them, and I got all the masters back <clears throat> just a year or so ago. And then I made a licensing deal recently to re-release the albums that I did for Razor and Tie. And uh, one, of the, one of the hooks in the whole thing is that the albums were never out on vinyl before. So they're going to be <clears throat> on vinyl, but also you know on all the digital platforms too. But I thought, um, just to make it more interesting for myself and for everybody, 
that I would uh, do a, like a single with each album, a brand new single with new track, two new tracks. And if you buy the vinyl album, then you get the, you get a physical 45 with the album with two new things on it. And that uh, the first one's coming out in January, January 15th. And the name of the, the name of the album that we're going to release is called Miracle of Science. I did it for Razor and Todd back in 1996, right in the middle of the Jim Blossoms thing. And uh, you know it's coming out and uh, it's remastered and it's got new artwork and it's, it sounds really great. It's a great rock album. And then it's got these two new tracks with it. So that's, yeah, so the answer is yes, I'm, I'm doing some new stuff again. Now, you, you said it's coming out on vinyl. Now, as an artist and as, you know, someone who's made albums and you've had CDs and you've had cassettes, did, did you miss, and I'm glad vinyl's making a comeback, but as an artist, did you miss when vinyl sort of disappeared? Well, I mean, for me, it never did really, because, um, well, I mean, I, I, bought, I always bought 45s until they stopped making them, I think. And, uh, but then, yeah, when, no, when CDs came along, I got on board with those, but I used to buy cassettes, too. Like, you know, and they sound terrible, but, I mean, they sound much worse than MP3s. But, uh, Anyway, and I, I, I'm not sure if I missed the vinyl or not. No, I mean, like I said, I never, I never got rid of my records. And uh, now that they're popular again, that's what I buy if I buy a record. Although I buy, I, I, I still get stuff online too. I use, I, I, I buy anything yeah. <laughs> as long as it's got music. Uh, I got, I have seven. I actually have seventy-eight, and. Uh, I haven't bought any of those in a while, but I, I have like I don't have any wax cylinders. I don't have any Thomas Edison wax <laughs> cylinders, but I have, I have like everything else. Well, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to me. Um, your tour is coming up. Are you, do you, are you getting excited? I mean, you know, do you, you when you play a Smithereens show and then you turn around and you play your own show, is it hard to uh-huh. is it hard to switch like that? Because I know you're playing, you know, you're playing at the ground. Uh, you, you you played that. You did that in October. You played on a Thursday night with the Smithereens, and you played a Saturday night by yourself. Is that hard to do? Is that hard to change in gear? No, it's cool. It's, it's good too because the Smithereens play about ten times louder than I do. So you know, like on the second night, I'll be giving my ears a bit of a rest. And <laughs> uh, no, it's great. I love doing what the stuff that I'm doing now. It's no complaints from me, you know. Great. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time. People, go to MarshallCrenshaw.com. Check out his website. Check out his music. When his new album comes out, and you go buy it, okay? So go to MarshallCrenshaw.com. Yeah. People, go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 750 episodes. Email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. Twitter, at CooperTalk. Instagram, CooperTalk1. So I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.